It's spring, 1695. Henry Avery sails along the coast of what is modern-day Somalia. The vibrant blue waters of the Arabian Sea contrast with the white sands of the African shores. Avery is looking for ships to pillage, or small tribes who will train goods with him. The ship's lookout spots a small port town. Avery scans it down his telescope. From this distance, there's not much to look at, a small, dusty settlement, but he spots activity ashore. In his cabin, Avery unrolls charts and begins to work out where they are. He quickly determines that they are just off the port of Maid. According to tradition, Maid is home to the Somali Isak people, one of the prominent noble clans in the Horn of Africa. Avery may be aware of this small pilgrim port, located off the proverbial beaten track. As early as the 15th century, explorers have landed at this Muslim settlement, hoping to barter for provisions, in particular, fresh meat. But wary of outsiders, many are denied trade. Avery, however, is keen to do business with them. This is an opportunity to replenish their supplies. Anchoring the ship, Avery sends his first mate and a few others ashore to conduct business. Shortly after they depart, they return. It's not good news. Avery is furious to learn the people of Maid refuse to do business with him. When he demands an explanation, there is no apparent reason. Pointing at his first mate, rage burning in his eyes, Avery orders his men to go ashore and burn the town. It is a terrifying sight for the people of Maid. They witness the pirates approach like a storm of hatred. Making land, hordes of pirates rush out of the boats and into the town. Locals are pushed and thrown to the ground. Buildings are set alight. Avery watches from the deck as May burns and the desperate locals fail to battle the flames. He shows no sign of remorse or mercy. With his men back aboard the ship, Avery orders the guns to fire upon the town. Hot cannonballs strike building after building, intensifying the fires and destruction. It is total carnage. The entire town is razed to the ground. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. 
Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's the morning of May 8th, 1694. A year before Avery's merciless assault on the town of Maid. Last night, Henry Avery mutinied and ran off with the 46-gun ship, the Charles II. Avery and his followers have laid a course for the continent of Africa, where they plan to make their fortune. But Avery still has a problem. Locked up in the hold are 15 men who refuse to join his cause. Furthermore, the captain, Charles Gibson, has been locked in his cabin, asleep with a heavy fever, and is completely unaware of what's become of his ship. Sometime in the night, the captain's fever broke. Sitting up in bed, Gibson reaches for a cup of water to quench his thirst and moisten his dry throat. Grabbing the cup, he feels the ship sway and hears the roar of the ocean. Before Gibson can get out of bed, Avery enters. He has come to discuss matters with the former captain. Gibson demands to know what's going on. I'm a man of fortune. I must seek my fortune, Avery says. Gibson sits dumbstruck in bed, his sweaty bedclothes clinging to his person. Avery tells him that the ship has been hijacked and is on course for the Indian Ocean. In a surprisingly diplomatic twist, Avery offers Gibson the chance to keep his title and role as captain as long as he adheres to their new cause. Gibson refuses. Avery knows he can't keep Gibson and the 15 other captives locked up in the hold. He'll have to dispose of them. But how? What options does he have? Slaughter them all or let them go. Avery is merciful towards his fellow Englishman. Putting Gibson and the 15 other crewmen into a boat, he sends them on their way. But not everyone is so lucky. Some, Avery refuses to leave. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. A small group were dispatched with Captain Gibson, who did not join or for whatever reason did not want to join Avery's endeavor. But a couple of them were, in fact, kept back on purpose. I mean, the doctor of the ship has skills that are pretty indispensable. So 
Whether or not the doctor was happy or not with it, Avery did prevent him from leaving with Captain Gibson. Another member of the crew, a guy named Thomas Joy, claimed, and I think it's pretty plausible, that Avery singled him out and refused to let him leave as well because he was a Cooper. And again, these are like skilled artisans that you kind of need to run a ship. And Avery was not above making sure that he had all the sort of human resources he needed to keep the ship afloat. With Gibson and the others gone, Avery is in command of the powerful warship and a crew of 85. He turns his attention to ship operations. After months of being stranded in the Spanish harbor, the crew are desperate to earn money. But how will the loot be dispersed amongst the crew? Avery tells them that from each capture, the captain will get two shares, the first mate a share and a half, and everyone else receives one share. This is pirate democracy in action. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Avery ran his ship in a pretty democratic fashion, and this, of course, is something that would be popularly known amongst the later Golden Age pirates in the 1710s and 1720s, especially kind of thanks to the pirate codes or the pirate articles. But these practices also did exist during Avery's time because some of the first examples of pirate codes we've seen came from Henry Morgan, dating back before Henry Avery. So the idea of kind of having a pirate or privateering ship and them having a more democratic fashion in terms of how they operated, that was already in play when Henry Avery was a privateer. So this practice, even though it doesn't seem to be very popular or as well known until the later golden age of piracy, this practice was already very much happening in Henry Avery's time. With Avery now in charge of the Charles II, he decides the vessel needs a new name. The warship is rechristened the Fancy, and true to Avery's word, he takes his crew on a string of attacks. The Fancy plunders its way down the Atlantic, seizing brandy, fabrics, and gold dust. It's not a bad start to Avery's full-fledged piratical career. It's late May 1694. Avery sails the Fancy to the island of Mayo in the Cape Verde Islands. Mayo is no paradise. It is a desolate, hilly wilderness, barely a hint of green and devoid of trees. This dead-looking island sits 350 miles off the West African coast. At face value, it's difficult to see why Avery wants to be here. Mayo is known for its salt ponds, and salt is vital to any ship as it is used to preserve food. Avery is on deck as the fancy sails into the cove. He pulls his eyes from the brown, jagged landscape and sees before him three anchored English ships. The presence of these English ships causes a predicament for Avery. His men are eager to take the ships, but Avery isn't keen on attacking other English vessels. He knows that attacks on his compatriots will make it much harder to integrate back into society. But he also knows how easy a crew can turn. He ultimately decides to maintain the control of his crew and raid the ships. Henry Avery was interesting because he didn't have a vendetta against the English. He wasn't actually out to attack English ships in particular, even though he did. 
but he was hesitant to do it. He was known to be kinder to any of the English prisoners. He also very much knows the realities of what would happen if he himself is being accused as a pirate. He knows he'll get thrown into prison, he'll be executed. And so the idea is, if he's attacking English ships, he's only doing it because he has to, he has no choice. And if he's going to be attacking English ships, the best he can do is to be as kind as he possibly can to any of the English prisoners that he takes. The idea being that eventually, when they're going to be released, because he will release them, that they'll be able to kind of put in a good word, basically saying, you know, yes, he did this, but he wasn't cruel to us. He didn't hurt us. He let us go. And so this kind of tells us that Henry Avery's motivations was probably get to where he needed to go as fast as he could. And if he had to attack English ships, then okay, he had to. But he's not doing it out of any sort of malice. He's not doing it to harm the English nation. And he's going to try to do, use that to his advantage to try to see if he can avoid any charges of piracy. It's an easy, bloodless score for Avery and his crew. The warship instantly makes the English ships quiver. Despite the three-to-one odds, they are no match for the fancy's impressive firepower. The English ships surrender without a fight and hand over the stores of salt supplied to them by the natives. Avery also takes an anchor, since the Fancy's anchor was cut during their daring mutiny in La Coruña. But there is something unusual about this raid. Unlike many pirates who pillage and loot, leaving a wake of devastation, that does not happen. Instead, Avery writes a receipt for the stolen goods. He thinks this will keep him in the good graces of his country. However, Avery also press-gangs several sailors to join his crew. Days after the raid on the English ships, Avery is troubled. He paces in his cabin, clutching a bottle of wine. The bags under his eyes are the sign of restless nights. He's told his first mate not to disturb him. England is embroiled in the heat of the Nine Years' War against France. Looting British vessels at a time like this sits uneasy in Avery's mind. He may have mutinied against the English employer, but he's not turning his back on his country. Sitting at his cluttered desk, Avery slams the bottle of wine down. He pulls parchment from the drawer, takes his quill, and dips it into black ink. To alleviate his distress, he pens a letter addressed to all English commanders. Avery writes that his ship is formidable, but he will not attack English vessels. His quill glides over the parchment, writing, I have never as yet wronged any English or Dutch, nor ever intend to whilst I am commander. But he instructs the English captains that they must identify themselves should they come into contact in the future. They're told to signal by raising their flag on the mizzenmast, and Avery will return in like, leaving them untouched. But Avery knows how quickly a crew can turn on its captain. He warns, My men are hungry, stout, and resolute, and should they exceed my desire, I cannot help myself. Avery signs the letter, as yet an Englishman's friend. But Avery's mercies 
extend only to his English brethren. Over the next eight months, his brutality is focused on non-white foreigners. From summer 1694 to 1695, Avery raids the West African coast on his way towards Madagascar. He barrels down and captures Arab vessels. Having finished his raids, the ships are burned at sea. He destroys the Somalian town of Maid because the locals refuse to trade with him. His viciousness doesn't stop here. Making anger where he can, Avery befriends local tribespeople across the continent. He promises them trade deals and lures some onto the fancy. But it is a deception with terrifying consequences. Once aboard, Avery's pirates clamp them in irons and rob their gold and other goods. Stripped of their treasures, Avery has no intention of letting anyone go. He forces these captured tribespeople below deck, where later he sells them into slavery. When Henry Avery reached the Red Sea, he ended up engaging once again in the slave trade. He knew that any enslaved person could get quite a bit of money for him and his crew. He knew that there would be a lot of really good financial benefits. So this wasn't much different than him assessing which ships would be the best to take based on how much wealth those ships had. Enslaved people were all part of those calculations. So it makes sense in a way that he would kind of go back to his slaving experience as he's going out there and assessing how to get the wealthiest he possibly can in the fastest method. So he would have seen many of the non-Europeans over in the East Indies, probably as less than, not quite as civilized, or just not really even seeing them as people the way he might other Englishmen or Spanish or French or other Europeans as well. And this was a pretty common attitude that European settlers had. This also accounted for the merciless, brutal attacks he carried out against Indian Mughal ships because there was little hesitation to really consider them as equal people as maybe it would have been the case had he attacked other European ships. Avery's problematic approach is one he knows may cause him the least amount of trouble if and when he and his crew attempt to resettle back in England. Or so he thinks. It could be squared, if not with the economic and political agendas of the English state, with the sort of cultural expectations of the English public. You know, it's important to remember that in the 17th century, a very popular literary model were captivity stories of English sailors captured by Muslim pirates in the Mediterranean, taken to North African ports and enslaved. And these stories were often highly exaggerated, very stylized, but they've served for the English public as a very compelling sort of example of the sort of ongoing sense that England as a Protestant nation was still, you know, fundamentally in conflict with the Muslim world. So I think that they also realized that the Red Sea offered them targets that they could at the very least justify on the basis of going on the account, right? Of sort of participating in a conflict that had been going on for centuries. Avery, the once innocent young man from Newton Ferrers, eager to make something of himself, has transformed into a gutless, inhumane pirate. 
setting ashore in Africa to raise a village to the ground, capture people and sell them into enslavement are not freedom-loving rogues going against the system. They may have been at times outside the system, they may have been at times at odds with Britain's imperial aspirations, but they weren't necessarily immune to an imperial attitude, or certainly not immune to carrying out imperial violence. Elsewhere, Avery's actions are beginning to stir up anxieties. A copy of his letter has found its way to the East India Company's Bombay office. Avery's promise to spare English ships doesn't ease the minds of those at the East India Company. Quite the opposite. The threat of Avery plundering the Red Sea is a direct threat to the company's trade agreement in this part of the world. Because until this point, piracy in the Red Sea has been nothing more than a nuisance. Before Henry Avery entered the Red Sea, piracy was a growing problem. Piracy had always been there. There's always been piracy, especially during times of colonization. But in the Red Sea in particular, there, we're starting to see an uptick, not just in piracy, but we're starting to see a presence of some British pirates coming in, such as Thomas Tew, who was a privateer who committed acts of piracy in the Red Sea before going back to the American colonies. So the British were on a bit of an alert for pirates coming in, but this wouldn't really become a dire situation until after Henry Avery came in and committed all the acts of piracy there. For years, the East India Company has profited from a trade relationship with the Mughal Empire in South Asia. But Avery's presence and threat to attack anyone except English ships jeopardizes the extremely profitable trade. The company knows that the Mughals don't take kindly to piracy. Typical attacks are done by English pirates. Even though the company has no involvement with pirates, the Mughal Empire's retaliation is taken out on the company. The Mughals will block trade, place embargoes, and even go so far as to imprison company officials in their factories. If Avery attacks, the backlash could be catastrophic. After all, the East India Company at this point is young and growing quickly into a politically powerful faction. The commercial interests of the company and the imperial interests of the English state are becoming inseparable. It's the vicious circle between empire and piracy. The economics of empire creates the conditions for piracy, and the pirates prey on the empire's economic interests. In the 17th century, it's the cost of doing business, but it can only be tolerated up to a point. It's June 1695, in a secluded harbor of Madagascar, for 13 months, Avery has ravaged ships and tribespeople, sailing from Mayo to Madagascar and the Cape of Good Hope and in India. His crew has expanded to an impressive 150 strong. Their loot to date consists of silks, linen, brandy, grains and rice, as well as gold and silver, amongst other things. While the gains are good, it's not enough to give up the endeavor. Avery wants to make one big score and retire like countless pirates before and after. 
but that is easier said than done. Or is it? Avery has yet to attack any Mughal ships, a relief thus far for the East India Company. However, Avery's captives have let him know that a fleet of nearly 30 Mughal ships will be sailing from Mocha, what is today Yemen, and will pass through the Red Sea on its way to Surat, India. These ships will carry thousands of Muslims on their yearly pilgrimage to Mecca. But most importantly, merchants will be delivering profits from their trade missions. This is a score Avery has been waiting for. Avery knows this is an unmissable opportunity. He orders the fancy to the mouth of the Red Sea to wait for their prey, the Mughal fleet. But Avery isn't the only one who has a similar plan. En route, he encounters two ships. Both vessels are flying the English flag. One is the Pearl, captained by William Muse, and the other is the Portsmouth Adventure from Rhode Island, captained by Joseph Farrow. Avery knows running into other pirates chasing the same prize is a possibility. It's also an opportunity to enhance his firepower. These English ships, from the American colonies, are privateers, hired to attack enemy ships. But knowing the reward to be gained from the Mughal vessels, they've diverted from their mission in want of vast riches. Pirates knew about the journeys of the Indian Mughal ships traveling together in large amounts. Like this is pretty common knowledge amongst pretty much all sailors, all pirates going in. They all had to kind of know each other's sailing patterns and they were always kept pretty consistent. And so this is also how pirates knew who to attack and when to attack in general was because they would familiarize themselves with different routes and with different fleets, et cetera, et cetera. Avery knows that the combined force will greaten the chances of bagging a larger score. The Pearl and Portsmouth Adventure agree. They join Avery and the trio arrive in the Narrows near the Red Sea's mouth. But they're not alone. Three other English ships lay in wait. The Dolphin, commanded by Captain Want, and the Susanna, captained by Thomas Wake, and the Amity, captained by Thomas Tew, a daring pirate in his own right. After the captains convene, it is agreed Avery's 46-gun warship will lead the charge against the Mughal fleet. It's August 1695. It's been one week since Avery and the other pirates joined together. Behind a small island in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, Avery and the five other pirate ships lay in wait for the Mughal fleet. It's a relentless week in the sun. The temperatures are a blistering 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and there is no sign of the Mughal fleet. One of Avery's men spots a ketch, a type of sailboat, coming their way. As the sailors pass the fancy, they tell Avery that the 25-ship fleet passed in the night, just two miles from where they're anchored. Avery shouts at the watchman, demanding to know how they missed the fleet. Under cover of darkness, the Mughal fleet slipped by the pirates with their lamps unlit. 
there is no way anyone could have spotted them. Sailing through the night with a good wind, the Mughal ships may have already put over a hundred miles between them. There isn't a moment to lose. There's still a chance the pirates can catch them. To do so, the pirates ditch their dead weight. Captain Want's ship, the Dolphin, is too slow for the chase. Want's crew boards the Fancy, which is already towing Captain Muse's ship, the Pearl. But leaving the Dolphin isn't an option, so the privateering vessel is burned. With the Portsmouth adventure and Captain Tew's amity on the other side of the Fancy, the pirates set a course for Surat, the Mughal fleet's destination. It's September 1695. After weeks of pursuit, the pirate ships are in a dead-heat chase for the fleet. But not everyone can keep up. Thomas Tew's amity is falling behind badly. Eventually, it disappears completely and is never seen again. Avery on the fancy and the Portmouth adventure continue without Tew. Sailing tirelessly, they cover 2,000 miles. Finally, they spot a ship. It's the Fat Mahanmari, a 300-ton ship owned by Abdul Ghaffar, one of Surat's richest traders. The ship is loaded with hundreds of passengers returning from the Hajj, the annual Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. The Fat Mahatmadi gets several shots off as Avery charges down on this vessel, the English flag flapping in the wind. The fancy goes untouched and overruns the Mughal ship. The pirates swing over with pistols and cutlasses drawn. Avery's men viciously cut down several Mughal sailors. The ship is mercilessly plundered, and passengers are tortured until they give up any hidden treasure. Avery gathers between 50,000 and 60,000 pounds in silver and gold. But the hunt isn't over. It's two days later. Avery is a hundred miles from Surat when his lookout sees another ship. The vessel is the 80-gunned Ganjisawe, the prize of the Mughal fleet, owned by the Mughal emperor himself. Aboard are 1,000 pilgrims, hundreds of soldiers, and relatives of the emperor. Avery gives the signal, and the battle begins. For two hours, the fancy and the Portsmouth adventure enter into a fierce battle with the Ganjisawe. A white smoke lingers in the air between the vessels from the repeated cannon and musket fire. All three ships sustain damage and a large number of casualties. But Avery won't give up. The fancy makes a lucky shot. A cannonball shatters the Ganjisawe's mainmast. The explosion kills four, and dozens of others are wounded. The Ganjisawe's defenses fall. They can't hold the pirates off. They neither have the soldiers nor firepower to overtake their attackers. It's hopeless for the Muslim ship. Avery's men take control of the vessel and it's hell for the captives. For two days, 
the pirates continue pillaging the ship. Like their previous capture, anyone who doesn't give up their hidden valuables is tortured until they do. But the pirates aren't happy to just pillage and escape. They turn their malignance towards the women, who they begin to rape and abuse. The corralled women tremble and sob. In a desperate attempt to escape the torment and inevitable family humiliation of victimhood, some women take their own lives. Some stab themselves with daggers, others throw themselves into the ocean. After two days of plundering and terror, Avery's men finish, leaving behind death and destruction. But he's finally got the big score he's longed for since he first set out from Newton Ferrers. The loot from the Ganjisawe fills the fancy's holds. Hundreds of thousands of pounds in gold, silver, and jewels. Later on in the golden age of piracy, such as the 1710s, 1720s, when pirates attacked ships and plundered, it was for the most part quite an orderly business. But when we're looking at Henry Avery, however, when we take a look at his actions, it's the complete, absolute opposite. When he and his men captured the Ganji Sawai, it was a period of several days of horror. They went in attacking without mercy, absolutely butchering everybody they came across. The women were subjected to mass gang rape for days, killing many of them. This wasn't just simply going and raiding ships. This was carrying out absolute bloodbath. Yeah, as much as Avery is a fascinating figure, I don't think we need to necessarily accept him as a heroic figure, or at least we should definitely not think of Avery as an unalloyed hero. What happened on the Gunsway, which Avery presided over directly, would be considered today, at the very least, war crimes. And it's important to bear that in mind, right? That amongst everything else that pirates are doing, there are real people suffering from real, criminal violence that is unleashed on them. Avery doesn't care about the blood on his hands. He's beaming. He's landed one of the biggest scores in pirate history. And the news of his attack spreads fast. It soon reaches the Bombay office of the East India Company. Their worst fears have become a reality. They know that Avery's attack is likely to cause problems for them. The company quickly sends off a desperate report to the head office in London, writing, All this will raise a black cloud at the Mughal court, which we wish may not produce a severe storm. But the fallout from Avery's actions is, indeed, coming for the East India Company. It would be one thing if Henry Avery and his crew attacked some random Indian Mughal ships, but the fact that the Ganji Sawai was partly owned by the Mughal emperor himself is very significant, and it is a huge blow to the English. There is a lot at stake for the East India Company after Henry Avery attacks the Ganji Sawai. The East India Company now risks losing everything they have built over the last 90 years while in the East India Company. This has been one of the most lucrative factors for Britain's economy in terms of gaining this huge trading relationship with the Indian Mughals, because it's also a new direct entrance further into Asia. 
with the actions of one single English pirate, it's all going to be obliterated in an instant. And so the East India Company is practically panicking, knowing that they're going to have to put everything into their power in order to salvage this relationship. The future of the empire might depend on appeasing the Mughal emperor. The East India Company will have to flex its political muscle to repair the situation. Plans start taking shape. But one thing is clear. Piracy in the Indian Ocean cannot be allowed to continue. Next time on Real Pirates. The treaties of the English fall on deaf ears in India as the Mughal Emperor rages at the news of Avery's actions. As far as the Mughals are concerned, all Englishmen are pirates, and all Englishmen will suffer the consequences. If the East India Company has any hope of saving their reputation, the man responsible must be found. The world's first manhunt will chase Henry Avery across the globe and catapult Avery into pirate mythology forever. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.